Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream And you can holler Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it, it's almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today is Monday, November the 30th, last day of the month, episode 326 today. Um, And what's it like today in Dallas, in Fort Worth, uh, we don't talk about the weather a lot, but I do on occasion because it's what friends do, and I consider all of my listeners my friends. And, folks, it's a beautiful blue sky day, a little bit of clouds here and there, 47 degrees, chilly for our area, even this time of year. And it will go down to 38 later in the week. I know some of you are laughing right now, thinking I got it made because you've had 38 degree temperatures in the end of August this year. Uh, you know, all that global warming stuff, which we're going to talk about today, but only because you asked. Remember, Mondays are listener question days. So these are all questions that have come from you, the audience, and my responses to them. All right, before that, though, let's knock out some housekeeping. Number one, take care of our sponsors. They help support the show. That helps me do this every day. That helps me go full-time in January. Um, sponsor of the day, number one, Ready Made Resources. Made them the sponsor of the day today because they're doing a 25% off sale on Mountain House with free shipping on case lots that ends today. Okay, that's why I made them sponsor for Monday. They were actually scheduled for tomorrow. But since their sale stops today, I wanted you to know. So if you're looking at stocking up on any Mountain House stuff, today would be the day to do it. <clears throat> today would be the day to do it and save 25% and get free shipping. Sponsor of the day number two today, Western Botanicals. Uh, great herbal uh, supplements and herbal remedies and information on how to use them to make your life better. Um, so check out Western Botanicals as well. Uh, next, make sure you get involved with our forum. Leave it at that. Also wanted to point out at the beginning of today's show, we do have a gear shop now. T-shirts, patches, and more cool stuff coming. Uh, check out the TSP gear shop. Uh, next, if you think the show's worth more than 20 cents an episode, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll get about $150 worth of free stuff on day one for your membership cost of how much? $5 a month or $50 a year. That's between 20 and 25 cents an episode. So if you think the show's worth two dimes, you want to support us, make the show even better, consider becoming an MSB member. Um, also, make sure you check out our YouTube video, uh, YouTube videos, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, I have really a couple cool videos I put up this weekend for you. Um, one was actually on Wednesday before the holiday started, and it was how to find free ebooks and PDF files using Google. And then I did one for you guys on Saturday, even though I was off. Um, that was how to set up emergency alert uh, emails or text messages using Weather.com service for specific types of weather alerts. So check out our YouTube. YouTube channel, folks, weather is danger, right? That is one of the biggest things that we threat on a day-to-day basis, uh, other than like the, 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 the fictitious stuff, you know, the end of the world scenarios and all. They don't really talk about that in the news much, uh, other than when it's actually ongoing. They don't make movies about it, other than the big, you know, stupid ones that are, like, ridiculous. Um, but day-to-day weather events kill people. Day-to-day weather events disrupt lives. Day-to-day weather events do everything from destroy a single home to destroy an entire 
entire town or even an area of a state or a, or a major U.S. city. So this is important. That's why I put the video together, and it's a free service, so check it out. And I'll also show you how to avoid getting spam on that. Last thing before we move on, I want to uh, remind you, we are nominated for Podcast of the Year. You can vote once a day up until November 30th, which is today. That makes today the last day you can vote for the Survival Podcast at podcastawards.com. So please vote for us. I want to win this thing, and uh, I think we can do it with your support. With that, let's rock on with the show. Um, first question is on global warming. I get people all upset every time I talk about this subject. Folks, I'm going to tell you what I think, not what somebody else wants me to think. And if you don't like it, then I'm sorry. Maybe, maybe, just maybe you should hear the other side of the story. And it's going to be a little bit different today. So don't hit the fast forward button. Listen to the question and then listen to the answer. And maybe you'll learn something today if you're a true believer in global warming that you don't expect to learn. The question is, what is my view on climate gain? I'll tell you what that is in a second. Will they ever really be able to use this thing to redistribute wealth? And will the UN become a taxing body? This question comes from our friend across the pond, Mark Delaney, over in the UK. Well, here's my view on climate gate. I haven't really been following the climate gate story as much as people might expect. Uh, you know, a guy like me who's been saying global warming is a scam forever and on the show for almost two years now, um, you would think that I'd be like, vindication, vindication. Well, I, I don't feel that way. I feel like it's so obvious that this whole thing is a scam that I'm totally not surprised. I'm totally not surprised how the story's being buried and not talked about. And those of you who don't know what climate gate is, especially the ones that are true Al Gore believers, what happened is a hacker hacked into the National Climatic Institute or something like that, where all these studies are going on about global warming, and, and sucked out a bunch of emails off the server of these scientists, these so-called scientists, talking to each other about how to cook the data, how to cook the books, how to start graphs at certain points and end them at certain points to avoid the indiscrepancies uh, that they don't want to talk about. Basically, They've been caught with their pants down, not just making this thing a scam, but openly discussing it as a scam between themselves. Whether or not that's valid, I'm not sure. I haven't been able to verify that, and I haven't been paying attention. Because it doesn't matter to me, because I think it's a scam on its face, and I think anybody can see that from the outside. Hang with me. I promise you, I'm going to get to the part you usually don't hear on the other side of the story in a second. Now, will they ever redistribute wealth globally? If we let them, and if it's not with uh, clients, climate crap, it'll be with something. There is a goal in the world for global government. Again, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't believe that they're going to round us all up into death camps and all this other crap nonsense that you people keep telling me that I need to believe. Um, I don't believe that it's you know some evil plot by the Illuminati and the 33rd degree Masons to, uh, to, to bring the earth down to 10% of its current population, because that just doesn't make any sense. I don't believe any of that crap. But there is a move, move toward global government. And the, the essence of government Government is control. In other words, having authority is the act of government. Uh, unfortunately, that's what it's become in the world. Instead of preserving liberty, which is what one government was set up to be ours, and it's long since been just screwed out of existence. So government is about control. And the way governments control is through the act of taxation. So if there's a move toward one world government, there's a move toward one world taxation. Will the UN be the taxing body? I have no idea. 
I have no idea if it'll work that out that way. Under the current system and the current way that things are going, yes. Will it stay that way? Will people resist? Will they have to adapt, overcome, adjust, and try to force this on us another way? Most likely. I think enough people are waking up to the way things are right now, at least in the United States and even in Britain. And Britain is so far gone. I don't know if you guys have a, have the ability to pull it back over there. But if, if the U.K. and the U.S. pull it back, then it's over for everybody. It's endgame for them. They can't do it. Uh, the Chinese are playing along because they're not being made to sacrifice anything yet. Now, the other side is, I promise the other side. This is why I get so pissed off at the global warming, climate change bullshit. And that's what it is. About CO2. Let me be very clear. That's what I think is bullshit. The CO2 is destroying the planet is a lie. It is an absolute freaking lie. This is the one fact, scientific fact, you can verify that none of the climate change jackasses will discuss with anybody, openly in public. CO2 has a saturation limit. It only blocks certain wavelengths of light. Once those wavelengths are blocked, you can put a thousand percent more CO2 into the atmosphere, and you'll get a very tiny incremental rise in its ability to retain heat. Less than one thousandth of one percent. And our CO2 in our atmosphere is very near its saturation limit, meaning that more CO2 doesn't do anything. But that's not what pisses me off, folks. The fact that they ignore climate history and they try to cook the books to make the... That's not what pisses me off. Here's what pisses me off. We are destroying our planet. Our large-scale agriculture, specifically in nations other than the United States because of the deforestation they're doing for agriculture, where in the United States we do much of our agriculture in the plains where there were no forests. So we haven't slashed and burned the forest for our agriculture as much in this country as we have elsewhere. The United States has more wilderness left than any other continent or any other country in the world. So we have more forests left. So we've actually done less of this in the United States. Not that we're not guilty. But in places like Australia, once fertile farmland is actually being turned by the agricultural processes and the cutting of the forest into salt flats. And the government's solution is to give the people pumps to pump the salt water into a drainage system to go out into the sea. And this is just making the problem worse. And we're salting the earth. And that's not just Australia. That's just where the government's helping them do it. All right, which is, which is insane since it's the birthplace of all these permaculture techniques. I guess Tasmania te- technically. But you know that most of this stuff's coming out of Australia. That's because they have the biggest problem and they're an enlightened society with the problem. But that is happening everywhere. We're cutting the forests everywhere. We're introducing genetically modified organisms into our biosphere with no thought about the long-term consequences of them. We're dumping pollutants into our oceans. We're using massive amounts of, of fertilizers to grow biofuels that are a net loss. Those fertilizers are washing to, into our oceans and expanding the summer dead zones in our oceans, destroying and crippling our oceans, releasing massive amounts of methane into the atmosphere. That does cause global warming. Methane is a much bigger threat than CO2 when it comes to global warming. And the amounts that's being belched out of our oceans from these dead zones is, is shocking and frightening. So my problem with the global warming jackasses is that there's, their, their lie is so loud that the only thing the resistor can do is go, it's a lie. So you have them going, it's the truth, it's a lie, it's the truth, it's a lie. And you almost never get a t- chance to 
breathe from this relentless assault on science, and it is an assault against science, not by science. Because real science doesn't back this crap up. Because of that assault, no one ever on the other side ever gets the chance to breathe and tell you what I just told you. No, I'm not for killing the planet. No, I'm not saying that mankind hasn't screwed things up. No, I'm not saying that we don't have a real problem and that climate change could be part of it. I'm just telling you CO2 is not going to fix it. And for those of you that really believe in this crap, that the cap and trade is the answer, and we're going to have a carbon tax, and we're going to save the polar bears. Let me tell you what the freaking thing does. Let's say I'm Jack Spirico, and I have TSP widgets, survival podcast widget manufacturing, right? And my widgets and my plant and everything, I have a CO2 emissions limit, let's call it 10. And I'm going to use 12 this year. Under cap and trade, I don't get shut down. No one stops me. No one cares. The government monitors my CO2 emissions, and they send me a fine. I can pay the fine, or I can go find somebody else who has extra emissions credits, and I can buy two. And I can buy two for less than the fine. The whole thing's set up that way to work that way, because they don't want the fine. They want me to buy the credits from somebody else. When I buy the credits, there's a tax on the income from the credits. So more money goes to the government, right? The cost of goods goes up. I have to sell my widgets to you at a higher price. Because, folks, I'm a business owner. I'm not taking the loss. All right? This is a myth. If we tax the corporations, we'll fix everything. No. The corporations take their costs, and they they give it right to you. And you pay more. And the guy that sold me the credits, he gets some money. Right? Right? But his business wasn't producing that pollution anyway. So how much less pollution? How much less pollution has been produced if we call CO2 a pollutant under this this scam? Zero. It's the same amount of pollution. All that happened is more money went into the hands of government. That is all. That's it. That's how cap and trade works. Okay, so I ran it on about that one, but God, guys, you guys have to understand this one because the, you know where the conspiracy theory overlies reality. This is one of the places, and this is the move toward global government. Because again, all you need to make a government work is a tax system. You create a global global tax system, you have a global government. And once you give a government a tax system, they expand it. And if you don't believe that, show me one government in history that's gotten the authority to tax one penny that didn't raise taxes and expand the tax system. Show me one. It's never happened. Even at times where governments are cutting taxes, the overall tax is being raised one way or another. Be it through inflation, be it through sin taxes, be it through fees, be it through... It doesn't matter. It's always gone up. Always. So there you go. So let's take a totally different question from a guy named Rob. Let's get off this thing before I snap out and do the whole show on it. Um, Thoughts on earth-sheltered homes is what Rob wants to know. What do I think about earth-sheltered homes? It's kind of a big question because there's a lot of different types of homes that you would call an earth-sheltered home. You might consider um, an earth ship, which is built out of tires and dirt. For its primary walls to be earth-sheltered. You might consider an underground home earth-sheltered. You might consider a berm home earth-sheltered, and they all are. I think they're fabulous on the surface. 
because their insulation qualities are absolutely amazing. A berm home in, 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 set up right to use the sun at the right time of the year for warmth and to keep the sun out of the house during the rest of the time of the year uh, with some skylighting done that uh, doesn't transfer a lot of heat, that's done to bring natural lighting into the home, is an amazing thing. It really is. And it will allow a massive savings in electricity. A, a huge portion of the construction materials ends up becoming the earth itself. Um, it's man living with the earth naturally, so all of those things are cool. The problem is that in a lot of places in the, in the world, we have this stuff called radon. And it's highly toxic. It's a uh, it's a radioactive isotope gas that, that exists in our in our earth. And when you put a basement in a home, or you do an earth berm home, or you do anything like that, your odds of having radon toxicity in your home go up. So my 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 caution is if the home's pre-existing to have it extensively tested for radon and to put in radon sensors. And if you're going to build it new to do extensive radon testing in a survey before you put a shovel in the ground. The problem is if you end up with high levels of radon, there's not really much you can do about it and the home is lost. You either live in a toxic radioactive hole or, or, or you, you find another place to live. That's, that's the problem there. So as long as radon is not going to be a big issue, I think overall they're great. They have tremendous ability to withstand storms. Um, you do have a flooding concern because any time, and that's what a basement as well, but you're taking the main floor of the home now and you're moving it below the surface level. And uh, I mean, again, anybody with a split level where the, the house is kind of on, on a plane is already dealing with this to a degree. You know, had their half uh, earth berm homes, and they don't even realize it. I had one in Pennsylvania that I guess I would classify that way. So it's not that there's not already people living there. It's not that you shouldn't do it. It's just you should be aware of these things. And the other thing is to think about if you're building, the construction materials need to be absolutely dynamite rock solid. Because if a wall's buried under earth and you have a structural problem with it, you have a big problem to repair it. It's not like a structural problem with an outer wall in a normal house. right? You say well, you can go in from the inside, but now you've got the earth pressed against it. So you have to excavate to repair structural damage for a materials failure. So you want absolutely 100% top grade materials uh, to build this house. You want a good survey uh, for radon and do a radon risk assessment before you put you know, a shovel in the ground, so to speak, or an existing structure you want to be rock solid with. And is there any type of shielding that can be done? And that's an engineer's question and one I don't have an answer for. And I don't know if you can put in some type of preemptive shielding for radon, but if you can, I would do it. I just highly doubt it because I've never heard of it, and it is a big problem in many areas of the United States and even around the world. So there's my thoughts on earth-sheltered homes. Uh, next one. This is an interesting one. Natural gas versus grid electricity um, for common, this is a deep question, the first level is for typical disasters, three to seven day long disasters, um, anything that you have powered by natural gas, this guy's kind of in a weird situation where he's thinking about buying a house and the house has gas heat, but all the other appliances that could be gas are still electric. Um, and he wants to know reliability of gas historically versus the electrical grid. Much higher for gas. 
gas is in pipes, it's in the ground, it's pressurized, unless somebody cuts the pipe in half, um, the gas stays on. And even if somebody, I've, I used to do underground construction work, and uh, we hit a couple different gas mains, and even with gas venting off of the pipe, most of the gas service down line remained constant, and they came out and they did this weird welding thing where they weld the pipe back together, and it was uh, it was pretty cool actually to watch, but dangerous to be involved with because if it goes up, you go up. And uh, so for short term, there is no question that gas is more reliable than electricity. Long term, we're talking end of the world, shit hits the fan type scenarios, um, it's just as likely to go down as electricity. The main reason it's more reliable than electricity day to day is if you're driving in your car right now or you're sitting in your office or your home, look out a window and odds are in most places you'll see at least some power lines above the ground. So when major storm, ice, wind, what have you hits, all of those lines are vulnerable. And the lines that are underground generally are not, but it's very seldom the case that power goes from a power station 100% underground to your home. So that puts power lines at a greater risk because they're simply above ground. This should hit the fan scenarios, other than maybe people doing vandalism and burning stuff. Uh, what you're talking about is the actual company providing the power failing because they don't pay their employees, because it's not safe to work anymore, because supply lines are cut off. Off, what have you. So in that situation, one is really no better than the other. Now, what this guy was thinking of, this is how it gets deeper, is long term, like all the appliances in the house are pretty old and really should be replaced, and one by one replacing them and switching them over to gas. I absolutely would say definitely, especially with the stove. Um, if I could get a gas stove where I live right now, I would have it. And not even for shit at the fan. I just like to cook. And anybody that's cooked on an electric range or a gas range can tell you there is no comparison. Uh, you're better off with the gas range. And because of everything I just said, you'd be better off going to gas. But his thought, he's thinking ahead, long term, big the end of the world type scenarios. If that happens, you know, the gas probably isn't that much more reliable. So, he says, I know what to do if electrical fails. I get a generator and a battery backup system, and, and I'm ready to go. Well, a generator is still a short-term fix. So I don't really see an advantage switch there. Now, if you bring in wind and solar, then your electrical stuff has greater sustainability. But you're going to need an awful lot of wind and solar, a tremendous amount, to be able to run a substantial refrigerator or range. In fact, the range is pretty much out of the question. So that leaves you going to some type of alternative heat source anyway. Right? So I still think gas is the better play here. Now his thought was, what if I go out and buy appliances with uh, the dual capability to run liquid propane or natural gas or get conversion equipment for that and bring in a big liquid propane tank? Not a bad idea. Uh, you might even consider if, you, if you're going to do that, why don't you just buy stuff that will run on the liquid propane period? And why not just sever yourself from the grid now? And why not put in two tanks and whenever one gets empty pay for a refill and if gas is spiked for a while since you have a full tank you don't and I mean if you're really I, I'm not saying I would do this uh, because I prep first for the smaller scale disasters with threat probability I, I'm not convinced that we're going to see that Tawakini you know uh, you know end of, end of days scenario where everything shuts down uh, it could happen, but, you know, I could win the lottery tomorrow, but I don't base my life on it. So I would still lean toward grid gas, but if you're going to buy stuff that will run on liquid propane, 
then I would really consider making the switch now while it's under your control. Um, I think you can do pretty damn close to the same financially. The beauty of a two-tank system is you can pick the times of the year that you buy, and you can take the historically low periods for liquid propane and purchase at that point, uh, where with gas, yeah, you get a set rate, but if they raise it, it goes up, and there's not a lot you can do, and there's not another pipe to pu- plug into and just change who you're getting your gas from. Uh, and I don't ever see it being deregulated to the level that electricity has been done in some states because it just doesn't work the same way. So there you go. There's my thoughts on it. I'm sorry if that's only as clear as mud, but the short answer is I would go with gas over electricity. It is more reliable for the day-to-day disaster. It's probably more reliable for the long-term disaster in that eventually, sure, it could fail, but it will probably fail long after um, your, your electrical grid failures begin to occur. In fact, it will probably be the, the grid failures that will bring on the gas failures because the gas doesn't need electricity um, to work at your house, but it, it needs electricity to, to, to run the plant that distributes it. Um, so I would say it's probably one of the last utilities that we're going to look at failing. So I would go that way because all you can do is the best you can under the most probable situations. All right. Uh, that said, even if you just uh, had your core appliances capable of using liquid propane and put in a liquid propane tank, that would be great. My problem with that is that you're just letting it sit there for years and years unused. That, that's why I don't like it. It's just a because it doesn't do you any good to do this unless you have the tank there and it's full, right? And if it's sitting there full and never gets used, you have problems with the valves. You have all you have the degradation of the of the propane itself over years and years. There's all types of issues there. So I'm okay. I'm cool with the liquid propane. But then you got to at least come up with some of your appliances that are using it day to day now, uh, so that it gets used and rotated and things like that. All right, let's. Uh, Go on to another one. This is a great question. Uh, that question was from Steve, by the way. There's no no women today, man. What's up with that? Um, this question today is uh, from Adam. And Adam says, what advice do you give for home defense in places where we cannot own a firearm? Uh, a lot of the advice is the same advice I would give to somebody that would end with and have a firearm. So this question is for everybody, not just the unarmed uh, person who's been disarmed by his government, most likely, um, I, I would assume, because just about anywhere in the United States, in fact, anywhere I know of in the United States, other than New York City, and, and I think it would be tough to, to even, yeah, I guess New York City, um, you could own a gun, at least in your house, even if it's just a shotgun or something like that. So I'm thinking it's another part of the world. Uh, Number one, get a dog. Get a barking dog. I don't care if it's a little bitty yippy yappy dog or a great big mean ass dog. Get a dog. Uh, the, the criminal's enemy is noise. They don't like noise. They fear noise. And just because you're not armed doesn't mean he knows you're not armed. Um, and uh, so a dog that barks is extremely valuable too. Get an alarm system. Get an alarm system that is both monitored and audible. The silent alarm shit, no no dice. By the time help gets there, the guy's probably taking what he wants and he's gone anyway but when that alarm starts blaring and a strobe light starts going off it's very disoriented and scares the shit out of a criminal and he's most like most likely not guaranteed but most likely to run away three get pepper spray 
Somebody does breach your home, ends up getting inside after all that. Spray the son of a gun until he's coated from head to toe like the Pillsbury Doughboy with it. Uh, it will have an effect on all but the most drug-deranged individuals in the world. And even some of those come keep coming when you put a couple bullets in them. So nothing's perfect, but get pepper spray. Um, get a good defensive weapon uh, that is allowed where you are. A baseball bat, a tire billy, uh, a crowbar, uh, or even a cutting implement like a good machete, uh, I think is quite intimidating and quite useful. Uh, you can mock black powder if you want to, but uh, if you have a burglar armed with a crowbar, and it is legal to own a black powder uh, weapon in your home, uh, a good reproduction revolver loaded up with, uh, you know, some big old patched round balls, not my first choice, definitely would prefer something like my 1911, but that'll work, and I know in some countries where you can't own firearms, you can own black powder, or it is easier to do, so that would be a thought as well. But but basically it is to make your home as difficult to burglarize as possible. So you keep your doors and your windows locked, as simple as that sounds. Uh, I've listened to interviews with uh, people that rob homes after they've been caught. And most of them don't rob homes in the middle of the night. They rob homes in the middle of the day. Uh, when people are home, because that's when they leave the door unlocked. So, like, this one guy that I heard on a talk show, I think it was Montel Williams one day when I was home with, uh, after some dental work or something like that, and he's sitting there zoning out on the uh, the TV on my, uh, my coating that the uh, dentist had given me. And... Um, the guy was saying that the way he would rob a home, and this is really quite brilliant when you think about it for a criminal to think this way, is he would um, he would break into the home simply by opening the door and going in. So he'd observe from the outside, see where mom and if the kids are around. He'd usually look for a time when mom was home and the kids weren't, and there's one person in the house. And you might think he wanted to hurt mom. Well, he wanted nothing to do with mom, right? And in fact, the best time, he said, was when if, if both uh, people were home because of what he would do next. So he'd make sure there was a clear shot, kind of scope out where the master bedroom is, knew the layout of houses. As soon as he got a chance, in the door, into the master bedroom, close the master bedroom door, lock the master bedroom door. Why master bedroom? It's where the jewelry and money is. Where the most valuable things that are easy to take would always be is the master bedroom. Have his way with the master bedroom, going through it. Okay? Now, mom decides I need to go to the bedroom. She tries to get in. Door's locked. Does she panic? No, she has no idea the house has been invaded yet. If dad's home, she's like, honey, did you lock the door? And then he's downstairs. No, I didn't lock the door. So they're arguing now over who locked the door. This guy's grabbing the last little bit of his stuff, opening the window, out the door, and gone. You know, they get a coat hanger. They do whatever they have to do to get into the master bedroom. They get in there. Uh, if he puts everything back, they don't even realize it's been robbed yet. And it might be the next day before Mom opens the jewelry box and Grandma's pearls are gone. That's how this guy robbed people. Now, you might think, is this like a two-bit uh, robber? No, this guy robbed people like the Kellogg family. Is it a Kellogg cereal family? And uh, he robbed people like um, some of the real bigwigs at General Motors. He had this one neighborhood he hit like eight times. And that was the type of people that lived in this place. This guy was living high on the hog with this method of robbery. So understand that when you're home and it's daylight out, and you don't think there's any reason to lock your doors, it may be the most important time to lock your doors. Because even though this guy never hurt anybody and said he never would have, we don't know what he would have done if he ever actually did get caught and was afraid that he was going to go to jail. 
And we don't know that everybody would be, let's call it as ethical as this particular cat burglar. So there's a lot of ways that people will invade your home behind the classic drug-induced psychopath kicking your door down at 3 a.m. And you need to be prepared for all of them. And to me, locked doors, barking dog, um, those are real good ways to go. And I've just added to my home uh, the MERS radio system uh, from our sponsor, MERSradio.com. And um, that system also comes with these motion detectors. And I bought two of them. And I won't say exactly how, but I have one monitoring kind of the back of the house and one monitoring the front of the house. And all they do is sound off with an alert, alert zone one, alert zone two. I had to play with them uh, to get them high enough up with their beams and hitting where I wanted and not being set off by neighbors. And it, it took most of, the, of, a, of a Saturday and a few beers with a buddy to figure out exactly how to set them up. Uh, but they're set up now, and the cats don't set them off, so the cat doesn't come home at 3 a.m. and maybe there's an intruder. But just knowing somebody's out there is a huge advantage. So I would look at motion to detectors as well, and motion detector lights. Uh, this is also a big deterrent. So you put all that together, you make your home pretty bulletproof. The gun is always to be the last ditch effort. It's the final response. I've tried everything else. I've locked my doors. I've told you to stay out. I posted my house. I have a burglar, whatever. You know, I close my door and I lock it. It's enough for me. That should be enough to tell you you don't belong in there. But if you breach my door, then the gun is what you get, right? If you invade my home and you threaten my family, you leave horizontal. But it's the last response, not the first response. It's not like, you know, gun owners. And I think there's people that don't understand gun owners that think, like, we're sitting on our, on our couch with our gun waiting for someone to come in the door. We live our lives like anybody else. But if we're concealed carry holders, all I'm saying is I come home, and that doesn't necessarily mean I take my gun off my person. If you break in my house, you pick the wrong house. Plain, simple, easy to understand. But in a place where I can't own a gun, I do all the other things that I've done to hopefully avoid the difficult choice of ever having to deploy that gun. Hopefully that answers your question. Um, Next question. What is the site where you always mention to look for rural land? i got quite a few of those people asking that question. And uh, what's funny is I always put a link. Every time I mention this site, I put a link to it in the show notes. So what this tells me is, folks, you're not going to the website. Go by the website every day. Check out the show notes. There's all kinds of cool links there. Check out the sponsor site. Go by the forum. Go to www.thesurvivalpodcast.com. Or if you're from a different part of the country, www www.thesurvivalpodcast.com There is a V or a the in front of the URL. So that's my first piece. Second, the the site is called United Country. UnitedCountry.com They are specialized in rural real estate. Now let me say the other side of this. I think by and large United Country's listings are overpriced. I think that there's opportunity there because I think that plenty of those people are willing to make a deal. And I think that you can find the property and you take the, the price that's on there and you know you have at least 10%, at least 10% negotiating capability with the majority of the properties, if not more. So I've had people email me this week as well saying, you know, a lot of stuff that I'm finding in my area seems overpriced. It probably is. This is how I use United Country. Because it specializes in rural real estate, it helps me find cities and towns and areas that 
are lower than their neighbors in the cost of living. So it helps me find the places where you know everybody in this part of the state seems to to be at a price point of X for 10 acres in a, a three-bedroom house. But this one town seems to have a lot of good deals in it. So then I take that information and I go to the mainstream real estate site, Realtor.com, and uh, I use the... Uh, sorry about the loud noise. There's some jackass that doesn't believe he needs a muffler. Um, I use the zip code feature at Realtor.com from the towns that I found on United Country, and I often can find a lot more homes in the area with some acreage uh, by doing that. So Realtor is going to have everything that's MLS listed, and United Country is only going to have properties that are specifically listed with United Country, and likewise, most of them are not out on the multiple listing services. So I use the two with each other. Maybe I don't always say that, so make sure that you use United Country. great place to browse, lots of pictures, a lot more information about any properties than you're usually going to find on Realtor. Realtor listings suck. I don't understand why that site still sucks, while most real estate agents still suck. People want to see 20 pictures of a property, folks, right? Especially when it's a, it's, a, it's got more than an acre of land to it. They want to know what the inside of the house looks like. They want to know what the views look like. If there's a creek, or they want to see that shit. And most of the time on Realtor, you don't have that. They want more than just your cut sheet, number of bedrooms, total square feet. They want to hear what's in the area, what's around there, uh, especially with, with, with country property. So that's where United Country excels to get that kind of information about a, a certain area, a certain city, town, range of zip codes, things like that. Then you take that information and you know that uh, a 10-acre property in that area is going to be somewhat comparable, and you use it as a starting point. Neither one of these things, folks, are like you know point-click buy a house. So hopefully I've never given that impression. They're starting points. They help you shop. But the site that I recommend is a good starting point. Again, unitedcountry.com will be a link in today's show notes. Make sure you go buy the site. Don't just download me from iTunes. Put a lot of stuff there for you guys. Put a lot of work into it. Uh, otherwise, I just upload this thing every day, and I wouldn't worry about putting the extra 30 minutes of uh, putting a blog entry to go with all this stuff. Um, here's an interesting question. Guy says, "Do you still consider smallpox?" Oh, the guy that asked the rural land question, "Hang, I'm still getting used to this new thing." And uh, the smallpox question comes from Jeff. Jeff says, um, "Do you still consider smallpox a, a credible pandemic threat?" And basically, Jeff says, "Hey, I, I heard a lot about this stuff. You know, the terrorists maybe would deploy it as a bioweapon or something like that uh, after 9/11, and then it just kind of disappeared, and no one talks about it anymore. And did the threat go away, or you know, were they wrong in the first place and it was never there?" Uh, short answer: Yes, I consider smallpox to be a massive pandemic threat. We haven't really vaccinated for it uh, in the mainstream for years and years and years. Uh, there's a tremendous part of the population today that's never been vaccinated against it. There's a large percentage of the population that even though they've been vaccinated against it, uh, they don't believe that they, they continue to maintain resistance to it as they did when they first received their vaccinations. And as everybody knows, I'm not a huge fan of vaccinations, but I think some of them make sense. And one of the most life-saving vaccinations of all times was smallpox. And it was pretty much eradicated from the earth, and uh, except that it's not, and that's why it's still a pandemic threat. We still have places in the world where occasionally people pop up. We have little mini epidemics of smallpox. It still happens. The majority of the population of the planet today has little to no resistance to smallpox. The only saving grace is that we can immediately roll out 
a vaccine because we know exactly what to make it from and exactly how to make it. And we have a proven vaccine. We have no stockpiles of it. So if it ever started to rage, we got a real problem. The most likely way that it would become a problem is actually there's two. One would be a mutated strain of smallpox as a natural mutation uh, that, that doesn't respond to the existing vaccine. That would be a big problem. But remember, smallpox was with us for millennia and millennia and millennia, and um, they didn't wipe out the planet. So it would be a huge disease problem, but it's not an end-of-the-world disease. Because we had a world when we had smallpox before. We'd have a world when we had smallpox, again, with better medicine today than we had back then. The other way is it's either used as is or genetically manipulated and altered and used as a terrorist-type weapon by whomever may use it. It may not be Islamic fascists or what have you. Right? There's plenty of people out there that hate other people that would weaponize something like this. And what people say is, well, they'd have to have access to the center of disease control. No, they'd have to have access to a human being with smallpox in one of these few small pockets of the world where this thing still happens. And it's not like it's hard to find out where that place is, and you can go to one of those places, and if you find someone that has an act of infection, you could harvest the, the, the virus from them. And once you had that, you could replicate the virus. And it is a poor man's weapon of mass terror. It is a real threat. It is something we should be vigilant about and pay attention to. But it's not something to walk around every day worrying about. So I'm glad we don't hear it in the news all the time. But no, the threat didn't go away. And yeah, it's, it's still out there. Um, here's the next question from a guy named Brent. Brent says... Um, would a vacuum sealer be a good substitute for O2 absorbers? I don't know that I call either one a substitute. The oxygen absorbers or the vacuum sealer is a substitute for the other. They both attempt to do the same thing to varying levels of degrees of success. What the O2 absorber does is we put it in something, we force as much oxygen out of it and as much air out of it as we can, and then it absorbs all the oxygen and air uh, that it can uh, based on its capacity and how much is in there. So if we take mylar and we push as much air as we can out of it and we seal it, we throw a couple big old O2 absorbers in there, the next day it almost looks like it was vacuum sealed. Where did the air go? It got sucked up and contained within the O2 absorber. Uh, and, and over time, some of that can be released back, but it's a fairly good process. We use a vacuum sealer. What we're doing is we're sucking all the as much of the air out as we can. We can't get it all out, but we get as much as we can out, and we seal it off so it can't get back in. As long as the packaging is not ruptured, it stays in a very oxygen-deprived environment. So, is one a substitute for the other? No, both do the same thing by a different means, and I would be comfortable using either one. That said, what would be the best thing to do? Throw an O2 absorber in something that you're vacuum sealing. If you wanted the most longevity out of your storage possible, that would be the way to go. Because any residual oxygen that is left inside your vacuum sealed product uh, would then be sucked up by the O2 absorber and you use much smaller uh, O2 absorbers. I've also had questions, so I'll combine this one. This one's not from Brent, but about big packages of O2 absorbers. They order like 100, they're all in one package. Well, you open the package, they're all exposed, you've got to use them all at once. What do you do? Vacuum sealer. 
uh, take out what you want very quickly, just vacuum seal the rest, uh, and you'll preserve their ability to work for you, uh, or look for the ability to buy them in smaller packages. And uh, I, I do a lot of vacuum sealing myself. I, I, I actually prefer it to O2 absorbers because I have a known quantity there, uh, and uh, I, I probably should use more O2 absorbers and the things that I'm doing. But I try to use vacuum sealing mostly, and I think it's been rather effective, at least for the things that I've been storing, which include things like um, long-term storage of, uh, of stuff that doesn't need refrigeration and really protecting my meat that I put in the freezer is uh, my bigger usage of that. I do a lot of... Um, for vegetables, uh, dehydration. And for meats even, if I'm not going to be freezing it, dehydration. And uh, whether it's making biltong out of meat or straight dehydration of vegetables. And um, I don't find the need to worry very much about vacuum sealing those. And that is where I do use O2 absorbers. And I'll generally put my vegetables into a jar uh, with a single O2 absorber and, and close it up. But I don't even know if that's really necessary. It's just very inexpensive to do. So it's an additional step I've always taken. So, I don't know if I'd phrase it that way, but I guess your answer is really a yes. I mean, either one's going to do uh, a similar job for you when used properly. Uh, and both of them have limitations to what they can and cannot accomplish. All right, here's my last question. This is a tough one. This guy says, I have a degree in physics from Penn State University. Cool. Love Penn State University. I'm in debt for $150,000 now. Ouch. Um, I plan to live poor for a while. Uh, and pay it off as quickly as I can. Do you think that's a good idea? Overall, yes. Um, what should I invest in after I get done with this? Now we'll leave that one to the end because you got a big problem ahead of you right now. Plan for a career in the military, though. Um, and uh, so I guess he's going to go in the military as an officer, is uh, under fire control or something like that. I don't remember the exact MOS. And the guy's name is Lee. Lee, um, damn, these are one of these questions I always wish I would have got in advance because I think there were ways to mitigate that student debt. And I don't know that you spent 150000 on your education. You probably spent $150,000 on your lifestyle and your education concurrently because you were living off your loans. Uh, and I wish you hadn't done that. But now we got the problem, so how do we deal with it? Number one, let's take a quick dose of reality if you're going to be an officer in the military. Uh, long time since I looked at military pay grades, but... A lieutenant entering the military today makes $2,655. Maybe with a fancy degree like a physics degree, uh, you enter with a captain's salary. I don't know. Uh, I doubt it, but let's say you did. Well, that's $3,540. These are monthly before taxes. So if, we, if you spent 100% of your money as a lieutenant in the, uh, in the Army uh, without paying any taxes and, and then spent all of your money you earned on your student debt, it would take you 56 months on a lieutenant's pay grade uh, or 42 months on a uh, captain's pay grade. Again, that's with 100% not paying any taxes. And trust me, buddy, when you go in the military, you're going to pay taxes. So a couple years doesn't seem like a real potential for you right now. 
So we may need to look at doing things a different way, and we may need to look at a 10-year timeline for paying your student debt, only because it's so big and only because your chosen profession, while noble uh, in service, uh, severely limits your income potential. And a guy with a physics degree can do a lot better, um, long-term anyway, probably, uh, than a military salary. But I I will not put down your choice. I I honor you and I respect you for it. So, uh, with that said, the next thing we need to do is go, well, is there any way we can really take a big chunk out of this? So, I haven't had time to look for this deeply for you because it's the last question I found for today. But I did a, a rudimentary search on Google for tuition forgiveness programs for military officers. And there's as much as a $65,000 check out there for you if you negotiate right under your enlistment and your obligation to the United States military. You can get rid of about $65,000 of that 150k debt. And now we're down to about 85k. That's much more manageable. And I would look for any and all ways that you can utilize the military to attack that other 85k. Um, you uh, and I'm not an expert in that situation, but that's my next piece of advice. Anything you can find will will work in the form of tuition, you know, post tuition assistance or tuition forgiveness in return for your service. If you get that 65k in there, now you've got something to work with. Now let's take a look at your question about what to invest in. Um, after you're done paying off. Number one, I would start a good, solid, basic, safe savings account, and I would do an allotment to it every month from your paycheck in the neighborhood of at least a few hundred dollars a month right now, and I would do that in lieu of paying on your debt. You're not going to accelerate a debt that large uh, very much with, say, $300 a month anyway. Um, but that will put three or $4,000 a year away for you, at least minimum safeguard. Let's say you're going to be in the military for at least five years. At least it's a $15,000 um, piece of uh, plain old money. Uh, at the end there, and you might want to do more than that, but I do want a big chunk going toward that debt because we got to get rid of it. But you've got to save some money. As for what to invest in, you're not going to be doing any investing anytime soon. And uh, since you're not going to be doing it anytime soon because you don't have the money to invest anytime soon, other than maybe a little bit in some silver, and maybe you do put a little bit into good solid mutual fund. Get yourself a decent financial advisor. Take a small piece and give that guy that to manage for you with your oversight. And I can't go deep into that. I've done shows on managing your financial advisor before. Maybe you put a little piece there, but it's a tiny piece. And it's not going to add up for a long time because you're weighed down with this debt. So what are you going to invest in? Invest in yourself and not with more education. You've got plenty at 150 k If you're a physicist and you have a degree in physics, then you are not an unintelligent person. You're a pretty smart guy. And if you told me, Jack, right now, we'll give you, for a free employee, a physicist, uh, do you have any need directly of a physicist? I'd say, no, I don't. I don't really need a physicist. I don't need someone that can balance, you know, molecular equations of the universe or anything. But if I can have them for free, you're damn right I'm going to take them. Because what does a physicist do? Solve problems. So I would invest highly 
in the future at looking at every problem that you can see in the world and looking for solutions to it. And I would build solutions to problems and I would sell them. Uh, I would create patents. I would create products. I would create ideas. I would create concepts. And I would do things from the most basic things in the world, taking a physicist look at a common problem and writing a stupid ebook for $20 and set up a web store, to looking for a patentable uh, major innovation for the defense industry, for, for anything you can. Now, I don't know how military uh, obligation affects patents. So you may need to set up some other type of an entity. You need a lawyer for that. But one way or another, I would make sure I'm building up. You, you just spent 150 k for a degree in physics. You know how to do things and solve problems that most people do not. You, your, your future now, economically, is not in the military or a grant from a prestigious uh, educational institution to work in their lab as a scientist. Your future is in taking that knowledge and applying it to problems and finding solutions to problems and using the credibility of the degree to sell those solutions, be they at a consumer level or be they at a major global economic level. And that's what you need to do concurrently with your military service. I'm not saying to abandon your military service to do that. I'm telling you along the way to make time and look for opportunities to develop that part of your life. And I think that they'll present themselves to you. And early on in your military career, there may not be a tremendous amount of them, but as you advance... And as you move up, and as you move into especially more administrative capacities in the military, you may find yourself with some time that can be dedicated to doing that. And whether you actually stay 20 years in the military and draw a military retirement, uh, or you do 5 years or 10 years and eventually decide it is not the career for you, either way. You've got to take this investment and look for a return on it. If you don't build something that pays you $150,000 back, You've lost all your money. You've wasted your education. And I, I don't hesitate to say that. You have. Because if you wanted just to be an officer in the military, you could have went to a community college, and you could have got your first two years knocked out for about $8,000. You could have finished up at a university uh, with a degree in general studies from just about any four-year school you wanted to and been as cheap as you could with it and gone to a state-supported school in Pennsylvania. You went to Penn State. You could have gone to somewhere like, you know, uh, Kutztown or Bloomsburg or something like that one of those state schools, uh, which you could have got into. very difficult to get into because it's highly competitive because uh, there's only so many spots available at those, those you know, lower-cost institutions coming out of high school. But with two-year degree in hand and finishing your degree, much easier to get into. You could have got out for under $20,000. And you could still be an officer in the military, and they'd still be glad to have you. So you made an additional $130,000 investment. I imagine it probably took you more than four years. You have a degree in something that most people can't even fathom, and you have now an ability to mathematically assess and solve problems. That is what you paid $150,000 for. So by God, use it. Now, if you're not a physicist, you're wondering how this, this advice applies to me. It applies to everybody. It's why I put it last, folks. So I like to finish up on things that are very universal, even if they don't sound like it. One way or another, you've paid a lot of money for an education in your life. I don't care if you're 20 years old or 40 years old. I don't care if you went to college or not. I don't care if you never graduated high school. One way or another, be it through effort, 
physical labor, uh, dealing with tough situations, busting your ass, hitting the books. I don't care how you did it. You've, you've got an education out of, out of life. You might have worked 10 years on a line in, in a factory, and that job might be gone now. That 10 years gave you an education. The problem is you're not applying it today. You learn things there that you've buried deep back in your head. What people need to do, no matter what their walk in life, no matter where their education came from, is think about how much you've invested in it. If you've invested 10 or 20 years of your life in it, that's probably more than this guy's $150,000 in reality. Because if I offered you $150,000 to go to jail for 20 years, you'd probably tell me to keep my money. But you gave it. You've already done it. You bought your education, too. So if you're sitting here shaking your head, uh, test, 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 $150,000, you've bought your education one way or another, too. So you have to assess your education and see how you can solve problems with it. How can you create something from the knowledge that you have? How can you build something from the knowledge you have? If you do that, I don't care if it's a homestead that you build from the knowledge you have, and you never sell anything but it provides for you, you've got a return on your education. Or if you create your own product, or you create your own industry, or you become part of a bigger company, there's nothing wrong with being a good employee, but finding a company that you can go to with something beyond a resume. And say, look, I've spent 10 years of my life doing this, and I've come up with this innovation. I want to bring it here, and I want to help make you a market leader, or doing it on your own, or whatever. But my challenge to you, what education do you have today? Where did you get it? How much did it really cost you? I never went to college. But I paid for my education with 20 years of fighting my way from packing boxes at $6 an hour to, to, to less than 10 years from that day. Less, way less than 10 years having a six-figure income and a major sales position for a major, United, for a major global company traveling all over the place. And I fought for that. And when I got to it, I realized it wasn't what I really wanted. And I had to stick with it for a while because it created a lifestyle around it. And I spent another 10 years extricating myself from it. That's 20 years. It's a very expensive education. And this is what I'm doing with it. My challenge for you, what are you going to do with yours? You have one. You've invested a lot in it. It's worth something. How are you going to make it pay off? With that, this is the Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or you're going to fail. You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.